ุยเดียวนะซาวด์แมนเซ thumbs up let's give it a shot our evening uh, sermon comes from Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 and we will be in the first 10 verses As is the custom of this church, please stand for the reading of God's inerrant word, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul, and, Ap- no. and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the innumerable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh God, how we need your Holy Spirit to illumine this text. Open your word, we pray. Give our hearts understanding. Make them responsive to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight we are going to hopefully see three things. Now normally, uh, cleverer pastors than I will come up with some sort of alliteration for the three points and you're able to get them. Mine usually don't have that. But tonight I'm going to use um, something for the math people, the numbers people. We're going to use numbers as our three. So it's going to be one, five, one. So all the word people, that doesn't mean anything to you, but all the numbers people, you're going to remember this better than the rest of it. One, five, one. One, the first section is one. There was one way that we lived before Christ. And then there are five things that God does to intervene. And then there's one way we live after Christ has intervened. So one, five, one. Let's look at verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead in sins. Not sick, dead. Now, as simple as this verse is, you would think this is just so obvious. We're dead in sins. Uh, this verse has caused many problems throughout church ages. Uh, let us look. Um, we'll go back to the year 400 in church history. There was a, um, a bishop named Augustine, and he said a prayer. This prayer is is one of the things he wrote down and it was circulated. He said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. So he's asking for grace in order to obey God's will. He's asking for grace to do that. 
Now, over in Britain, there is a monk named Pelagius, and he detests that prayer. He thinks that is a terrible prayer. He says, you don't need to pray for grace to obey God. Everything that God commands, we can do. It it would not be right of God to command something that we can't do. So he hates this prayer. And he ends up uh, creating a whole bunch of things that follow from that. Uh, Who is right in this? Well, you good Bible people can know immediately with just slight recall. Let me think of some of the commands that God has asked. And let me see if we are able to do that in and of our own strength. Uh, Perhaps we could start with Matthew 5.48. This is Jesus. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, which column are we going to put that in? The can do without God's grace or the can't do without God's grace? That is clearly, I mean, this clearly falls in with what Augustine is saying. He's saying, grant what you want, God. Grant what you want and then give me the grace so that I can do this. So clearly, Pelagius is in the wrong. We, we can see that Christ has set a high bar. God demands perfection. And 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and there is no truth in us at all. So clearly, uh, we need grace in order to do this. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, so Christ is the second Adam in that. So that was the second thing that Pelagius didn't like. He not only didn't like the idea that you had to get grace in order to obey God. He thought that seemed unfair. He also hated original sin. He hated the concept that we have a fallen nature. And so here in this verse, Romans 5.12, it is clear that sin did spread to all mankind from Adam. That is a clear teaching in Scripture. And when he would deny that original sin, if you deny that imputation from Adam to all of his offspring then you're, you also deny the second imputation, Christ, all of his righteousness to all of us. If you're saying imputation doesn't happen, then you've got to deny these imputations. And in fact, later Pelagians, that the church condemned uh, the Pelagian heresy as heresy uh, back in that day, but it has not gone away. It has crept up over and over again. In the 1700s, Charles Finney preached this. And one of his tenets when he was preaching, saying that man can do all these things without any help from God, one of the things he denied was Christ's atonement on the cross. He said, when Christ died, it was just an example for us. And so we ought to live and do this and and do this for ourselves. So this is the kind of crazy thing you get into when you start to think logically and say, well, it's not fair of God to ask me to do something I can't do. It certainly is right that God has a standard, whether we can obey it or not. All right, R.C. Sproul, let me quote him on original sin. Original sin doesn't refer to the first sin that Adam committed, but to the results of that first sin. Original sin is not, in fact, in and of itself, an actual sin. Original sin describes our fallen sinful condition out of which actual sins progress. It is our corrupt nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This original sin is in itself a judgment of a righteous God on a good creature that he made. So God has given us, he created us good. We fell, and this is in our nature. And if you happen to think, well, 
That's not fair. I, I, I would have done better than Adam. Well, one, your pride is proving you probably wouldn't have done better than Adam. But two, he was the best of us. He, I mean, as we, have, we are so sinful, and he was the best of us, and he did not follow through. So don't think, well, you know, if only I had a shot, I would have done it better. We prove daily that we would not have done it better. So Pelagius and Augustine go back and forth on this verse, and, and Augustine was so helpful to the church. He, came, he, he phrased it in some Latin phrases. Passe pecare, the ability to sin or to err. Uh, that's what we had before the fall. We had the ability to err, and we also had passe non pecare. We had the ability not to sin. That was before the fall. But once the fall happened and this judgment came, now we are in a state where we are non passe non pecare. It's not possible not to sin. We, we are in this state, and how, how do we know this? Well, look at the text we're starting with. We are dead in sins. You are dead in sins. If you are not a Christian, I was dead in sins before I became a Christian. Can dead people raise themselves to life? That's a simple question with a simple and obvious answer of no. Uh, it is strange to me that this original sin and this notion of us being dead in sin before we have been saved is so offensive to so many people and denied by so many people. It's not a mystery to me why it's offensive. I get why it's against, you know, people's inclinations. But it's strange to me that it's denied by so many people because, uh, as many theologians have pointed out, it's the most obviously observable in nature. Just look around this globe. I mean, look at your own children. You don't have to teach a child to begin to lie. You don't have to teach a child to begin to want more of the toys than the sibling. You don't have to teach children these things. It comes out of them. Vody Bakum, for anybody who's heard him preach, he frequently says these, these babies, which we do think are so cute, they are not little angels. They are vipers in diapers. That's what he says. They're very selfish. They want. They need. And he talks about how that, that stiffening of the body when they're mad, like that comes. And if it was a fully grown, fully strengthened body, it might be liable to kill somebody just over what it wants if you take the keys away from it. So we, this is just so observable, and yet so many people will deny original sin, that this is where we are. We're born. Uh, we weren't created that way in the beginning. Uh, God created good creation, but then there was this fall, and it has affected all of us. And yet, even though it's observable and we look around the world and it's everywhere, it, it, this, this notion has not gone away. At the First World War, people saw how terrible and miserable, how much loss of life and, and all the gases and the barbed wire and all this terrible stuff. And they said, surely we will never do this again. Man has learned their lesson. We're going to be good from now on. We're going to do right. And then not, what, 40 years later, there's another one. And so the innate... Uh, sinfulness in us, our dead nature comes out over and over again. So I restate, we are dead in sins. We're not sick. We're not drowning. You've heard that analogy many times. The analogy is not that you're drowning in the water and here God is and he throws a life preserver to you and you grab it as you're going under the water. That's not the analogy. That would be a drowning person. But you are dead in sins. You're already at the bottom of the ocean, cold and lifeless. Him throwing a life jacket. No one seeks after God. We know that Bible verse. No one seeks after God of their own. So we would not grab that life jacket. We would be loving the sin of the water and wanting more of it until it kills us. So that is not the image is that we are dead in sins. When Christ called to Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus did not have a part to play other than to 
act on what Christ did. Christ told him to rise and he rose. It wasn't Lazarus choosing to rise. He was dead. All right, verse 2 and 3. In which you once walked, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So first of all, notice, he's pointing to them in which you walked. And in which all of us walked. We're all in the boat. Every Christian, every Paul is saying, I am in this boat. Not a single person is outside of this situation before they were saved. But these images are of people acting and doing and living. I thought you just said we were dead, Charles. How, how are people living in these actions and doing these things? Well, the imagery that we're given. Let's look at uh, Romans 6, 6 real quick. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what's this image? You are dead in sin. Your spirit, your soul, your, your inside, the spiritual nature that can respond to God is dead. It's not responsive. But you are clearly alive and you are living. But you are slaves to that sin. You keep wanting and choosing that thing that is so destructive to you. If anybody has dealt with... Uh, someone you love or a family member that is addicted to any sort of substance, you know what this is like. This person who's addicted to this thing that is literally killing them. And, and for people who are addicted to methamphetamine, they, get, they start losing their teeth. And it's so obvious that this thing they're doing is terrible. And yet they want more and more and more. And this is the picture we have here of humankind. We are dead in sin. And we just keep craving it more and more and more. So, yes, we are committing actions, but, and we are alive in, as physical bodies, but we are dead in our spiritual nature. We are uh, wanting more and more of this evil. We are uh, following after the flesh, etc., following the course of this world. Uh, just one more image about this following the course of the world. Alistair Begg points out that you don't have to be an alive fish to go with the current of the stream and just be carried along the way the world is going. You have to be an alive fish to swim upstream, to go against that current. But when you are moving along, you, you can be a dead fish very easily. Verse 3, children of wrath. Now notice, uh, we, have been, we were dead in sin. We're, we're following the nature, the, the flesh. We're doing all these things. And then what is the just consequence of this? We are children of wrath. God's righteous judgment is upon us. And it is right that we would be judged. God is a good judge. He must do right. The judge of all the earth will do right. So to summarize this, these first three verses, what is the state that we are in before Christ? Alistair Begg uses three words. We were dead, enslaved, and condemned. That is the state of all mankind before they come to Christ. So if there's anyone in here who hasn't come to Christ, that is your scary state. Now, these three verses paint a very bleak picture, and it's very, it's very hard. And you heard Pastor Wakeman mention that there's many people on TV, TV preachers are so easy to point out. There's many of them that won't mention a single thing about this. And why? Because this is so negative. Now, what's wrong with that? In Acts 20, 27, Paul talks about the whole counsel of God needing to be preached to the people. So we can't leave out this bad part. And second of all, if all we're preaching is, uh, here's how X, this part of your life can be better. Or here's how this part of the, here's how your life can be even better than it is. Someone who feels their life naturally is already good, doesn't need that stuff. 
And especially if it comes with baggage like morality. So they can easily say, well, if I ever become weak-minded, then, then I'll get religion. But right now my life is going fine. I'm doing what I need. And so they can reject it. But you need this picture of what your state actually is so that you know what you can turn to. And then secondly... This is that that terrible picture that we painted about people wanting the sin that is killing them and going back and back and back and getting more and more of this sin that is so terrible for them. That is the backdrop. That's like the velvet backdrop that you put the diamond of the gospel on and it shines so brightly. If there's no need for the gospel, then the the gospel doesn't sound good. So you must preach the uh, law and the gospel. Luther says that man is roused to see his impotence by the law. All right. This was the one, the first part of the outline. One, what is the one state of man before we come to Christ? The one state of man is dead in sin, dead, enslaved, condemned. That was the one. And now to the five. In verses four and five, we're going to see uh, the five solas of the Reformation in just this compact little section of verses. And it's so wonderful. Uh, Verse four and five. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, who is doing the saving here? God. We've already covered that. Dead people can't save themselves. God has to be the one saving. Lazarus contributes nothing. You, before you're saved, contribute nothing to this enterprise. Verse 4 and 5 is sola gratia, by grace alone. By grace alone. There's no place for works here. You, by grace, you were saved. Notice that little, uh, the two dashes in that text. He's going along in a sentence and then he just wants to punctuate it right there. By grace, you're saved. So that's the first sola there. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Now in verses 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In just those two verses, in Christ is mentioned three times. And then we're at a chapter and a half into this book, and it's been mentioned uh, 14 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's punctuating that over and over again. Are you getting the picture on where all of these blessings are coming from? In Christ. I think Paul is making that clear to us. So that is solus Christus. In Christ alone. So by grace alone. In Christ alone. We are raised. Now, it, it's using some imagery here. It says we were raised up and seated. And it's talking about in the past tense. And yet here we are on the earth. So how is this happening? Well, Matthew Henry points out what remains yet to be done is here spoken of as though it were already past. Though indeed we are raised up in virtue of our union with him whom God has raised from the dead. When he raised Christ from the dead, he did, in effect, raise up all believers together with him, he being their common head. And, with, and when he placed him at the right hand in the heavenly places, he advanced and glorified them in and with him, their raised and exalted head and forerunner. So you remember... 
uh, we, what we made sure we knew in the first chapter. We are uh, predestined by God's love. We are securely in his hand. It will be accomplished. And so when Christ raised him up, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand. So it's speaking of this as past tense, even though we are still on this planet. And so strong is our union with Christ. That is where we are because of our union with him. Now, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. You get the picture here that he is repeating himself. He already said before, and then he says it again, and then he says the opposite of it. He's saying, you're, not, you're saved by grace. He's repeating it over and over again. And you would think no one could mess this up. No one could mess this up. It is so clear. And yet, so many in the church throughout history have messed this up. It is just strange. What could account for this except for the dead, dark hearts that are in us before we come to Christ? There is a blindness there that needs Christ. So here we are. We are in sola fide, by faith alone, by grace, in Christ, through faith, by uh, faith alone. There is no place for works here. I was at uh, the park down by the museums two weekends ago, and two very uh, kind uh, Mormon gentlemen came up to me, and they were trying to convince me that their position was correct. Uh, I was quoting back to them scripture, and they were quoting to me things from the Book of Mormon. So I would say something along the lines of, well, what about Romans 3.28, where it says, you, we hold that man is justified by faith alone. And then they would quote back to me from the Book of Mormon, you, you were saved by, by what you do. Af- no, you're saved by grace after all you've already done. So once you do all your effort, then God will meet you halfway. That is not the picture we are given in these verses. This doesn't say God is saving you by faith. Halfway, once you've worked, once you've done, this verse is so clear. Uh, Neither they convinced me nor I convinced them. I continue to pray for them. I pray God will open their eyes and they will be clear on this point because it is a life and death point. This point of justification by faith alone. You, You cannot earn your way to salvation. Augustine points out if... So of the five solas, let me just make this clear. Of the five solas, the one that's not explicitly in these scriptures is sola scriptura. Okay, so we've covered by God's grace and uh, through faith and uh, we're going to get to to his glory. But where is the scripture alone? Well, what have we noticed from all of these? We've already toured uh, the Pelagian heresy. We'll tour one more heresy. And these Mormon gentlemen that came up and, and tried to talk to me, where were they getting their beliefs from? They're not getting it from the scriptures. They're getting it from logic. Well, it doesn't make sense that God would forgive somebody when they're not doing their best. Well, I agree it doesn't make sense, but that's not what the scriptures say. God saves you. God saves you. It's not your own doing. So whenever you, you see it throughout history, whenever you're taking what you want from the scriptures and giving you human analogy. uh, Here's Augustine's quote that I started to quote on this point. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe in. It's yourself. You have to go to the Word of God and take what He says. Sola Scriptura, learned about by the Scriptures alone, not ourselves. So, 
It says there, not a result of works. We're going to tour quickly one more, not a uh, damnable heresy. So Pelagianism saying that man can earn their own salvation, that is a damnable heresy. You cannot believe that and, and enter the gates of heaven. No one can earn, that, can earn salvation. That is clear. This is an error in doctrine, although it is not a damnable error in doctrine. Uh, we could... Uh, tour in the 1500s between Luther and Erasmus when Luther wrote his book Bondage of the Will or we could tour the 1700s uh, with Edwards and Wesley they're both writing the same thing Edwards book was Freedom of the Will Uh, let's go with Edwards since he's more recent that's my attempt at being current Uh, that's about as close as I get to the modern day Uh, so uh, Edwards is saying, here's a quote from Edwards, men are free to choose that which they most desire. So they are free from any um, coercion from the outside. Men are choosing what they want. And what is it they're wanting? They're wanting sin, more and more and more and more of sin. And men are choosing that. That's the choices that they're making. So Luther called that the bondage of the will. You do have a will, but you're enslaved to sin and you keep choosing it over and over and over again. And yet uh, Wesley and Erasmus and all these other teachers come up with this other system. So they don't fall into full Pelagianism that says man can earn it on their own. But they've come up with uh, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, which says... That Wesley's phrase was prevenient grace. God gives enough grace to where everyone can either choose or not choose. They can, it gives enough grace to cancel out the original sin. They don't deny that there was original sin, but there's this thing called prevenient grace. Now here's R.C. Sproul's uh, commentary on this point. It is not a question of man's need for grace. It was a question as to the extent of that need. The church had already condemned Pelagius, who had taught that grace facilitates salvation, but is not absolutely necessary for it. Semi-Pelagianism, since that time, has always taught that without grace there is no salvation, but that grace is, con- that grace is considered in all semi-Pelagian and Armen- Armenian theories is a, suve- a, a grace that is not efficacious. It is a grace that makes salvation possible, but not a grace that makes it certain. Now, the biggest question any semi-Pelagian or Arminian has to face is the practical question at this level. Why did I choose to believe the gospel and commit my life to Christ when my neighbor who heard the same gospel chose to reject it? And so when you bring it down to that level and say, well, why did this person do it and that person didn't? If they get the same amount of this non-effective grace, why? Well, it would come down to, well, I thought better about what was being offered to me and I chose it. I uh, had the better raising. Or There's something that you could point to to say, I did this, whereas this person didn't do that. And the whole point of these verses is it's nothing of you. It's by grace. It is God's doing in this. Alistair Begg says, faith is not our contribution. It is our response for the very faith is the gift of God. Grace is the source. Faith is the conduit. We come to Christ with empty hands. Uh, this, when you don't believe this, these doctrines, the rest of the scriptures become very hard to understand. But when you believe these doctrines, it starts to make sense. So, for example, in John 3, 7 through 8... Remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And he says, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So that makes sense when you're thinking of it. This is from God's perspective. He is, set, he is giving this grace to everyone. And if, if you don't think of it that way, then that verse is very confused. And just like Nicodemus was saying, I don't understand this. You would be confused if this is not the doctrine you accept. All right, moving on into verse 9. We see the phrase, so that no one may boast. This passage is eliminating any room for being able to say, I was better than this other person. I did the right thing. Jesus, let me into heaven because of what I have done. No, there is no boasting. We all deserve judgment by God. And so which of the solas is this? This is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. There is no room for boasting. At the foot of the cross, no man stands proud of his life. Every man kneels, weeping that their sins caused this cross to happen. You have been saved. Why is this uh, in the past tense? Well, the term saved is a broad biblical term, and it's used in different places, different ways. Uh, in Romans 5, 9, here's the, the verse. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that's talking about saved in a future tense. And in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that's it in present tense. And then the verse we have now, it's, it, you have been saved. Justification is a specific point in time when you were justified, justified, made right by God. When you were regenerated and given new life. That was a specific point in time. But that salvation, uh, it's, it can encompass the entire part of it. You can be referring to the justification part, which if you're in the future, that, that would be a past thing. Or you could be talking about the term as in once we're glorified, we're saved from the wrath to come in that end time. So this whole thing, you'll see Paul use that term in different ways. And now we, so that was the five. So one, uh, there was one way before Christ we are all dead in sins. Then there was the five, the five solos of the Reformation. And the way I'm picturing it is we are dead in sins. And God's hand, five fingers, is reaching down and grabbing us and giving us life and pulling us up. So that's the glorious five solos of the Reformation. And now for our final one in the outline. There is one way of being after Christ has saved us. And what is this one way? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So if we, we are believing these verses, as they say, we were dead and now Christ has made us alive. He's given us new life. Of course, we're going to be living differently than we were before. We were dead. We were chasing the things of this world. And now we're alive. We have that spirit of life in us. And so, obviously, we're not doing it perfectly. But our whole life looks different than it used to as far as being alive to God. We are no longer dead in sin. Now, notice, this says we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. 
the God's providence is not ending at our salvation. That's that predestination part, the individual soul being saved. But his providence continues. He, he ordains the ends and the means. So your good works, your sanctification, your gro- that is his workmanship. Now, uh, Matthew Henry puts it this way. Only faith, not works, can bring us acceptance with God. But good works are vital, are a vital consequence and evidence of life with God. We who were dead are now quickened. We are saved from the death of sin and have a principle of spiritual life implanted in us. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As dead As death locks up the senses and seals up all powers and faculties in a state of sin as to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens up and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. So you can think how glorious this gospel is. This world, this unsaved world is in a worse condition than Israel was when they were in slavery in Egypt. They at least knew they were slaves. And God rescued them out of slavery. And yet this world, when we look out and see people that we care about and people all across this world don't even know that they are in slavery to sin, serving their lusts of their flesh, And yet we have the best message, this liberating God who brings life to all people, who brings life and good works to those whom he has saved. Oh, what a gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what love. What power that has life over death. What a gospel. Thank you for accomplishing what we could not. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Oh, how we love you. Thank you for providing the communion meal, which we are about to partake of. May we do so with full hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.